1 John chapter 2. We will attempt to finish the chapter this morning. 1 John chapter 2. Remember the whole theme of 1 John is that he wants us to experience that deep fellowship that he has with the Father and with the, with the Son. He wants us to go deeper with Jesus. And so he, he explains that how that's going to happen is by being assured of our salvation, by having that confidence, that assurance that we are the Lord's, that I am my beloved's and he is mine. And to assure us of our salvation, John has been examining three tests that we can measure our life against to see the genuine work of God in us. And so John closed out his explanation of that third test, the truth test, last week with an exhortation. He says to them, stay in the truth. Keep making Jesus your home. The promise of eternal life cannot be improved on. The promise of a relationship with Jesus and the Father can't be improved on. Now, the reason that he he exhorts us to stay there is because there are a lot of other voices out there trying to get us to move off that path. They're trying to deceive us into thinking that there's something better that you need to add to those things. And, you know, what we're going to find out this morning is that that's another reason that Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, is because listening to the Holy Spirit's instruction, it keeps us in the truth and it gives us confidence in our relationship with God. So chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 26. John says, these things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. John He's summarizing basically everything he said in chapter 2 thus far, and he he starts off by saying, listen, I need to give you a warning. He says, these things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. In other words, everything that he wrote about the truth test, verses 18 through 25, where he was drawing the clear line between, you know, this is is what you need to believe to be a believer. This is what born-again people believe. And he, now he warns, he says, I wrote these things to you concerning them that seduce you. There are those out there seeking to lead you off the path. They're seeking to to cause you to make a mistake, to be mistaken in how you approach your relationship with, with the Lord. Antichrists, these individuals that he introduced us to in verse 18, he says they seek to take Jesus's place. Antichrist doesn't just mean opposed to Christ, it means seeking to supplant Christ. And so, They seek to take Jesus' place by enticing a person off the path of following Jesus and onto the path of following them instead. In other words, they'll tell you, well, no, this path is better than Jesus. This promised land that I'm, I'm pointing out leads to a better promised land. Now, Jesus warned us about this danger. In Matthew chapter 7, he told us that these two, there are two paths, they're there. He said, but one leads to a place you don't want to be, and the other one to a place you do want to be. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, enter you in at the straight gate, the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. In other words, they see and they go, well, this is a good 
broad road. This is an easy road. I'm going to go that way. So he says, because the reason they go that way is because narrow is the gate. Narrow is the path, the way which leads into life, and few there be that find it. The word straight, it means narrow, a narrow space, but it's, it's not just a narrow space that's shorter or squishier. The concept is, is that the narrow space exists because there's numerous obstacles on the path. In other words, that the gate's narrow and the other one's broad, but then when you get inside, the difference is as you get out there, the road's not just as narrow as the gate. The problem is, is there's all these obstacles on the path. And so to get moving, you've got to squeeze through tight spaces to get down the path. In contrast, the wide gate, you go through it and it just stays wide. You look out there, there's like no obstacles. And when given the option of a road covered with obstacles that only have tight spaces that you can squeeze through, or a road that seems to have no obstacles, which one seems more attractive? I live in Sanford, and so getting down Lake Mary Boulevard is always a bear to get to I-4. I-4 generally is okay. But every once in a while, as you're going through the bear of Lake Mary Boulevard, you get to the overpass and the the on-ramp to Lake Mary, and you go, oh, this was a bad idea because there's nowhere to go. There's there, you're kind of wedged in, and you're just kind of stuck. And so frequently, well, before we leave to come to church, I'll look and i say, all right, is 1792 faster? Not normally, I know that, but is it faster today? Because there's less obstacles to get through. 1792 looks more attractive on some days, because it's the path of least resistance. That's why Matthew 7:15 exists. Right after Jesus tells us about these two paths, He says, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You see, the road that promises no obstacles is a farce, and the one telling you that it's a better path doesn't have the ability to deliver on that promise. And in the end, you will be their lunch, because that's what wolves do. They lure their prey out and eat them. They don't really care about you. Jesus does. And so John warns his readers about this because the truth is, even though he believes most people that he's writing to will pass these tests, the person who's failing the truth test is susceptible to those types of influences. They're susceptible to antichrist influence. And when a person is consistently resisting what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what God wants to do and what God's capable of doing, When they don't embrace those truths, that person is very susceptible to this kind of seduction. Now, the person who is passing the truth test doesn't need this kind of warning because the Holy Spirit who lives inside of them is their warning system. You hear that and automatically you go, yep, stay away from that stuff because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and He is our warning system. Verse 27, But the anointing which you have received of him, it abides in you. And you have not need that any man should teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth and is no lie, and even as it has already taught you, you shall abide in him. Stay there. A lot, big sentence there, a lot to unpack, but let's start off with the first idea. There's a blessing for those who are passing the truth test because he says, listen, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You can know that. And when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, he makes his home in you. 
When it says here, but the anointing, there's actually an untranslated you at the beginning of the verse. In other words, but as for you, in other words, you who are passing the test, I have to warn you guys who aren't because you could be seduced. But for those of you who are passing the test, the anointing which you have from him, what's the anointing we have from Jesus? Well, the word anointing here is the same word as unction in verse 20. It refers to the substance that would be used to anoint a person in the Old Testament, usually oil. And we know that oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit. We know that Christians have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so he says, but you all, you all who are passing the test, that anointing, that Holy Spirit which you have received from Jesus, it abides in you. The word there to receive, it means to more than just to be like, oh, thanks. It means to acquire something as a possession. We learned last week that the Father and the Son make their home in us the moment we get saved. Well, now John tells us that the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, He also makes His home in me. The Holy Spirit, He abides in you is what John says. Literally, it means in you, emphatically at the beginning of the sentence, like in bold font or capitalization. In you, He continually makes His home. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and go in a person's life like He did in the Old Testament. We have a better covenant through Jesus. We have been raised up to be joint heirs with Christ. Our sins, they're not just covered like they were in the Old Testament, but they're completely cleansed now, and we stand justified forever before a holy God. That's a better position, and as a result, the Holy Spirit, God Himself, can dwell inside of us. In Romans chapter 8, it describes this wonderful truth. It says in Romans 8, 15, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And since we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be, we suffer with Him that we may also be glorified together. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and He makes His home in us and He stays and so because of that beautiful blessing, we don't ever have to pray like David, take not thine Holy Spirit from me. We don't have to pray that prayer because God doesn't do that. Oh, yes, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us when we mess up. Now, this beautiful relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit, that He indwells us, He makes His home in us, and He doesn't go away, doesn't take vacations that grants us wonderful benefits. And one of those benefits is that He is our built-in instructor. It says here next, that anointing, that Holy Spirit that you've received in Him and that, that stays in you, well, it says, because of that, you have no need that any man teach you. The phrase need, you have need not that any man should teach you, it means you never have a lack. You never have a lack that produces the result that you need like a special tutor or a certain a human being to be your special instructor. Antichrist leaders, they will tell you that Jesus and His Word and His family, they aren't enough for you. You need more than that. You're still missing something, and we're the only people who can give it to you. I'm the only person who can give it to you. Because a believer permanently has the Holy Spirit permanently dwelling inside of them. They're not lacking anything that requires a special instructor to make up for what's missing. The Holy Spirit is the only special instructor we need. Now, you might be thinking, why are we here this morning then, Pastor Will? <laughs> of 
Why are we listening to you? <laughs> Sadly, this verse has been used by some to say, well, we don't need to be taught the Bible or we don't need to belong to a local congregation. I would say to that individual, if that were the case, then the Holy Spirit's double-minded, which he, we know he's not. He's not confused. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, you guys know the verse, but it says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Some people were doing that back then already. But instead, you should be exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The idea behind this, this word assembling here, it's the same word used for the local synagogue. It refers to a public gathering, something outside of my home environment. And the not forsaking part is a participle, which means it modifies what comes before it, which is verse 24, the provoking to love and to good works. We need to gather together with other believers because our salvation never exists in isolation from other believers. Maybe you got saved on your own or maybe in a one-on-one relationship with somebody at work or a family member, but every person who repents of their sin and places their trust in Jesus Christ is immediately placed into the church. You're part of us, whether you like it or not, baby. Part of the Christian life, part of being someone who's been given access to God through Jesus, part of that life is is that I'm called to stir up my fellow believers to act in love and to do good works. And that's the beauty of coming to a public gathering of believers. Everyone has a part to play. Church, Christianity, is not a spectator sport. I don't know if you guys like March Madness. It's one of my favorite times of the year. The whole concept of 32 games played over two days, I just, I like salivate. I'm just like, this is like, yes. And I enjoy it. And every game, I usually fill out one of the brackets, join up to one of those win a million dollar things, whatever, and always lose. But so every game, I've picked a winner. So every game, even if I don't care about the schools, they mean something to me. It's very exciting. But I'm not a participant. I'm a spectator. I watch what other people do. Church is not like that. Church is not a spectator event. It's a participation event. And so God's design is that every believer, this is like we were going to say, what's the goal of of church at Calvary Chapel Orlando? The goal of of any time we gather as a a group of believers, you could say this is the local congregation I'm a part of, the goal every time we would get together in any way, shape, or form is that everyone is seeking Jesus before we get here for something to say or do that will stir up at least one brother or sister when we get together. Like the idea is as you're reading your Bible throughout the week and as you're praying throughout the week, yes, you're asking the Lord to teach you and to grow you, but you're also asking, saying, God, give me something to do or say that will provoke a brother or sister to loving others more or to following you more. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's not supposed to be, I'm not saying it is for you, but it's not supposed to be the idea of where you show up and you're like, all right, preacher, give me all you got. Yes, this is one part where I'm trying to hopefully provoke you to love and the good works, but the idea is that's just one part. There's a lot of other opportunities as you you hang out and you talk, you pray with somebody, or you, you, you hang out with them and you notice something, you pull a brother aside and be like, dude, you kind of rude to your wife there, man. That's not how we're supposed to do that. I was reading this week, and the Lord was challenging me to be tender towards my wife. To, the Bible says to dwell with her with understanding. You weren't very understanding, bro. You're like, oh, man, thanks. I needed to hear that. That's what it's all about. That's what the church is about. 
That's what God designed us to gather for. In Ephesians 4.16, it talks about this goal, this design of, of what God is desiring to bring us to in the church. It says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. In other words, you know, we're all connected because Jesus put us there, but, but now we're all embracing that connection, my connection. I'm connected to, in this way. And as a result of that, it says, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part. In other words, everybody's doing their part the way they're supposed to. It results in making increase or healthy growth or nourishment of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. That's the goal. Now, you might be saying, that sounds great, Pastor Will, but still, why do we have to listen to you? The way a local congregation, and this is not, I didn't say that this way, Jesus did, but the way a local congregation progresses towards that goal is by exposing ourselves to the ministry of those Jesus gives to the church to equip it to do so. And that's what the previous five verses talk about in Ephesians 4. It says, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some uh, pastor teachers. Why? For the perfecting maturity of the saints, for the work of the ministry, so they can be equipped to do the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. And how long do we need that in our lives? Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God and unto a perfect man, a mature man. Well, how mature do I need to be? Just like Jesus, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children, immature, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But instead, we learn and we grow to speak the truth in love and become more like Jesus, our head. So when you and I come to a church gathering and we give our attention to someone who opens the word of God to us, we are essentially saying, God, I need to be stirred up to love and to good works so that I can be equipped to stir my brothers and sisters up to love and to good works. And essentially what you're saying when you come to a Bible teaching is what you're telling the Lord, hit me with your best shot, God. I always provoke, I always think, well, it rhymes with poke. Provoke has never been a positive word for me. It is in the Bible. But to me, it's never been a positive word. I'm like, I don't want to be provoked. Because it feels like being poked sometimes. But that's part of what we're doing right now. Like you're opening yourself saying, God, you can poke me if you need to. I'm welcoming the provoking so that I can provoke others around me. People very clearly poke each other at times during the sermon. <laughs> Every believer needs that regular infusion of instruction. We all do. Acts, 20, we read in our scripture reading the awesome things of what God did in the church in Acts 2.43 through 47, but that happens because of Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, their teaching, in fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. So, when John says here, you don't have any need that any man should teach you, he's not saying ignore the rest of the stuff the Bible says about the importance of church or the body of Christ. That's not what he's saying. What John is saying is that the Antichrist out there who's saying you need them, they're lying to you. I love what Kenneth Weiss said. He said, no teacher, even a God-appointed one, no teacher is the only and ultimate source of a saint's instruction. That's not how it works. If your concept of Christianity is I go to church on Sunday and the pastor teaches me, you are missing out because you have the Holy Spirit. 
Like, the Gnostics taught, they, the leadership in the Gnostic movement, they taught and they sought to make believers dependent upon them. You need me. You need us. But the job of a pastor or a Bible teacher is to provoke the congregation to become more dependent upon Jesus. A pastor's goal isn't to guide the congregation into all truth. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 13, he said, and when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he shall guide you into all truth, not pastor so-and-so. My, my job is not to give revelation, okay? Far too often it seems to me these days that that appears to be the job description, that you've got to come and you've got to hear some fresh idea from God and the only guy that can deliver it or only group that can deliver it is whoever the leaders are. The job of a Bible teacher, a pastor, is not to give revelation. The Holy Spirit already gave revelation. We don't need any new revelation. That's not my job. If you're coming here to be, leave and go, well, Pastor Will said, duh, 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 and that's going to change my life, you're going to leave disappointed. I don't have anything that can change your life, but the Holy Spirit's given you everything to fully and adequately change your life. A pastor's job is to rightly divide the Word of God, to give not revelation, but illumination and instruction into what the Holy Spirit has already revealed. The Holy Spirit's the one who speaks to your heart, telling you how you need to apply these revealed truths. I used to hate it when I'd go counsel with my pastor. Because I'd sit down with him, and, and I, I, would, I would say, okay, here's what's going on in my life, whatever. And I wanted him to tell me, do this. And he would never do that. He was such a jerk. <laughs> he would always say, well, this is what the Word says, and this is what you need to pray about. He'd always send me back to Jesus. He'd always send me back to the Word, back to the Holy Spirit. This is what the Word says. This is what's true. Now you need to go and talk to the Lord about what you're going to do about that. That, that required me to go deeper in my relationship with Jesus. And sometimes, to be frank, it's not what we're looking for. We want our problem to go away. Sometimes the Lord, he's allowed things to come into our life because he's going, you don't really see the need to know me. Why am I going through this? This is awful, God, don't you love me? It's like, yep. But this is the only way that you'll come to me. This is the only way that you'll see the value of fellowshipping with me, of, of going deeper with me. Now, while the Holy Spirit is our guide, our teacher, into all truth, I have also heard some people warp that truth in another bad way. You'll be talking to them and, and you'll say, well, this is what the Bible says, and, and so you, this is the, the reality, you're doing this, and this is the Bible says, so you need to go and get with the Lord and fix that. And then they'll reply, you know, well, God isn't telling me to apply his word the way you're saying. Having the Holy Spirit as our special instructor doesn't make Christianity a free-for-all when it comes to interpreting the scriptures. That view, the Holy Spirit didn't tell me to do that. I've had people tell me, I know you guys are going to be like, what? I've had people tell me, well, the Holy Spirit told me I could have this affair. Or the Holy Spirit told me that I could do this. And I know, again, I, I never say that without getting like, you, ooh, what? That type of response, but, but I've heard it. And, and again, it's because this idea is warped. Yes, the Holy Spirit's your teacher. I'm not your special instructor. No brother or sister is your special instructor. But 
that view ignores the rest of the sentence. If we keep reading, it says, first off, he's not going to leave you. He makes his home in you. Secondly, he's your special instructor. You're one who warns you when something's off. But thirdly, it mentions here that the Holy Spirit is always going to seek to conform us to his word, to himself. So it's not a free-for-all. He says, but, you don't need that any man should teach you, but, the word but there means in contrast or on the other hand, while that's true, there's another side to this, and it's this, that that same anointing, on the grounds that the same anointing teaches you all things, there's another ground. And that ground is that the Spirit who lives inside of you who teaches all things, He's of the truth and of no lie. So he's never going to tell you to do something that goes against his word. And he says, in that area, you shall abide in him. That's where you need to stay. Yeah, he's your teacher, but he's never going to tell you to do something that goes against his word. So you need to stay in his word. The Holy Spirit never changes. God's word never changes. What is right and wrong never changes. And who God is never changes. And so in the same way, John says, you listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that led to your conversion... He says you need to listen to the Holy Spirit's instruction on how to please the Lord with your life. Now, the reason John needs to remind us of these two ideas, he's our instructor, but he's never going to instruct us to do anything that goes against his word, so stay there. The reason he needs to remind us of that is because we tend towards the extremes when it comes to those two ideas. We tend to either gravitate toward letting others tell us what to do, or the opposite, which is a rebellious, do-it-my-own-way mentality. That's what we tend towards. We gravitate towards those, one of those two extremes. But the right mindset is, is in the middle. It's to have a submissive heart that invites others to pour into my life, while at the same time, never letting anyone come between me and Jesus. It's a balance. We need Bible teaching. We need to be connected to other believers because I know this is true for you too, but I develop blind spots. I've had those moments in my life where I'm sitting in a teaching or I'm at a conference or in a Bible study or whatever, and the person's teaching, and all of a sudden, it's like the Lord just sideswipes you. You think you just, I'm trucking down, everything's great, I'm doing everything that pleases the Lord, and all of a sudden, it's like, whoosh, the Lord just takes you out. And you're like, where did that come from? Well, it's like, I've been trying to just talk to you face to face and get your attention, but you're just not, not listening. Sometimes we harden our hearts to God's Spirit and His instruction. And so exposing ourselves to other people's influence allows the Holy Spirit to get our attention when we're not listening to Him. It gives Him another avenue. Because when you come to an, like a church service or, or a conference or a Bible study, or you get together with other believers and you fellowship, you kind of let your guard down and you're saying, God, I want to hear from you. And so the Lord's like, oh, good, finally. <laughs> because we do get hard hearts sometimes. But while that's true at my core, I'm a child of God, not a child of a denomination or a pastor or anybody else. No person comes between me and Jesus. There's nothing lacking in the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave to me. And so because of that, I can open God's Word and I can learn it. I don't need a special instructor. I, I can hear His voice because I'm His sheep and He's my shepherd. Amen? Well, verse 28, John's just going to kind of wrap it all up, everything he's taught us in chapter 2. He says, and now, 
Now little children, and it's it's that same word he used up in verse 12, that's a reference to all believers of all maturity levels. Born ones is what the word means. So whoever you are, you're a little child in this case. You've been born of God. Now those of you born ones, those who have been born again, he says, abide in him, which means keep on making him your home. He keeps saying that. Keep on making him your home. Why? That when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The word there, when, should be translated if, but it's not the if of like if Jesus should, should appear as if he might not appear. The idea is if he should appear in our lifetime. And, and what's interesting to me is that John is using that that conditional clause of, of more probability again here. He believed that it's very likely Jesus would come back in his lifetime. That's what he believed. And so if it was true back then, then it's even more true today. John did not believe anything needed to happen for the rapture to occur, for Jesus to come back in his times. So if it's true then, it's true today. Nothing needs to happen. Jesus can come back at any moment, and we should always be ready. He says, Keep on making him your home so that if he should appear in our lifetime, is the idea, we might have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Confidence is that word we've been talking about, assurance, that we might have assurance. Shame. The word confidence and ashamed are actually antonyms in the Greek language, opposites. I find that interesting. The word here for shame, it means you're shamed to the point where you shrink away. Like, have you ever seen someone and you're ashamed because of where you are, what you're doing, and you kind of hide? You're like, I hope they don't see me. I was at, uh, I've only been there twice, I was at House of Blues for a concert, Christian concert, Striper was there. But I'd never been before. And when I got there, you walk in, and yeah, it's a kind of, well, it is a bar environment, whatever. And that was kind of like, eh, okay, whatever, it's a concert. I'm here, for, I'm here for Jesus. But then you look up and they've got like every religion represented. We, and it's got like a phrase that says, we are one. And I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm like, I'm like if someone sees me here, I'm going to get in so much trouble. And so anyway, concert starts. I'm like, all right, they all love Jesus. This is good. All right, this is great. We're magnifying the Lord. Everybody's singing. And then I look over and I go, oh no, that's pastor so-and-so. <laughs> Cool part, though, is I think he saw me, so we were good. <laughs> but that feeling of like, oh, I didn't get seen, that's very different from the assurance of being seen. Those are two very different experiences to have with someone. And so his desire is just keep on making him your home so that you're, you have assurance when he comes back and you don't shrink away and go, oh, no, no, no not now or not, not here or not, not where I'm at in my relationship with you right now. Confidence and shame, they represent two ways that you and I can have a relationship with God. And one of those ways allows us to go deeper with the Lord and the other one keeps us at a distance. It is possible for a Christian to experience shame in their relationship with God. We can experience shame because we have a rebellious heart we can experience shame because we, we listen to the condemnation of the enemy. And John, in his letter, addresses both of those, those problems. He's been telling us all throughout chapter 2, he says, listen, if you're, if you're not being obedient, you're not loving others, or holding fast to the, the truth, and you're experiencing shame, you don't have assurance of your salvation, he goes, well, then repent. 
Change that. You don't have to relate to God with shame. Instead, you can be someone who's growing in obedience and growing in your love for others and growing in your understanding of the truth as you submit to God's Word. And you don't have to experience that shame. John also says we don't have to experience the condemnation of the enemy constantly beating us up. We're going to get to chapter 3, and he's going to address the fact that even if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart because he knows all things. Our heart only knows a few things. Do you ever notice how your heart has short-term memory loss? Long-term memory loss, too. Your heart, it just points out the worst thing that most recently occurred. You never do anything right. Well, that's not true. You don't love the Lord. Well, right now I'm being stubborn, but that's not true either. A heart doesn't know all things. I was telling somebody the other night, I said, it'd be nice if I had like a little like robot that followed me around and just kind of reminded me of all the times God's come through for me in the past. You get a crisis, you get the email, the mortgage went up by $300. You're like, whoa, what are we going to do? And the little thing comes around and goes, look at all that God had done for you so far. And you'd be like, oh, that's right. This is no big deal. But our hearts aren't like that. Our hearts condemn us sometimes, but God's greater than our heart. He knows all things. And so he, he says, listen, if you don't have to let the enemy beat you up because there's still so many areas of your life that you need to grow, and you need to grow a lot in those areas. That's okay. Acknowledge that the growth has occurred, is, that it's proof of your genuineness, and then find the assurance of salvation that comes from that. Either way, we need to, if you've been relating to God on the basis of shame, you need to stop. Because then what happens is, is we have a legal relationship with God. You read your Bible because, well, I don't want to go to hell, or I don't want, to, I don't want God to be mad at me, or go to church, or, or serve a brother or sister, or love your wife like you're supposed to because well, I don't want to bring bad things into my life. That's a legal relationship with God, and legal relationship with God brings shame. Makes us feel like the only way we can go to Him is if we're doing everything right, and if that's how you relate to God, then you're going to have very small windows that you go to God. And if you have very small windows where you're spending time with Jesus, you're not going to have a very deep relationship with Him. In contrast, when we have confidence in our relationship with the Lord, when we have that assurance, well, we can look at our, our failures, our sins, our shortcomings the correct way, and then keep on growing as we keep on making Jesus our home. John says, Live that way. <laughs> Live in such a way that when Jesus comes back, the assurance you have makes it a joyful occasion. That when, I don't want to be someone who's, I hear the trumpet, dur, 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 and then all of a sudden you're like, oh no, I, I, can I get like two more months? I can fix this in two months. I don't want to be like that. But I hear the trumpet and the shout, the voice of an archangel, and Jesus says, come up here. I want to be like, take me home, Lord. Make him your home now, is what John says, so that when he comes to take us home, you're not shrinking away in shame. There's a fascinating idea that John brings out here, and it's the idea, this idea, that there should not be a drastic change in how we relate to Jesus when our experience of him drastically changes. It's going to be a drastic change when he comes back and we see him face to face. We see him in his glory. I mean, John's impact of he had even seen Jesus before, and then when he saw him in all his glory, it wiped him out. So, I mean, that's going to be a drastic change for us. But the concept is, is that the way we relate to him, like it shouldn't be like, well, well, hi, my name's Will. 
What's your name? Well, that's a dumb question. Like it shouldn't be like the first time we've met or maybe the first few times we've met. What do you like doing on Friday night? It shouldn't be like that. Yeah, the experience is going to be dramatically different, but the way we relate to him, John says his, his desire is, is that we live in such a way here, we, we're going deeper with him, that that's not really a big difference at all. That when we behold his face for the first time, it's like just we continue the conversation. Now the relationship is just better, not different. I had a long-distance relationship for almost a year with Bev when we were engaged. I was at college, and I looked so much forward to getting on the payphone, because that's how we did it back then, <laughs> racking up the charges on my Sprint phone card, how we did it back then. But I, I loved hearing her voice, and then I'd come home. I loved seeing her face, being able to hold her hand again. And obviously, in a less romantic idea of just family, seeing my family, being able to hug them, being able to just talk and not have the limit of, this is costing me lots of money. It's always better face-to-face in a good relationship. And that's the idea is that John's saying, make him your home now so that it's just better when he comes. Because that's how believers are supposed to live. That's how believers live. He's telling us this is what a believer is and this is how believers live. It's how Paul lived. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he goes, listen, I don't know what's going to happen. He goes, I don't know if I'm going to get released or if I'm going to be executed. I think God's going to allow me to be released. But he said, I, all I know is I don't want to be ashamed. That I want to have confidence. He uses the same two words. I don't want to live in, in such a way that I'm ashamed of, uh, in my relationship with the Lord. I want to have that confidence so whether I live or whether I die, I'm pleasing the Lord. It's what believers do. It's how we live and therefore how we gain our assurance. So verse 29, John wraps it up with this last thought. He says, you, you know this because you've observed it. He says, if you know that he is righteous, the word know here is, refers to head knowledge. If you, you understand the fact, the truth that Jesus always does the right thing, he never fails, right? Jesus is always does the right thing. If you understand that truth, then you have learned, the word here for, second word for know is learned by experience, gnosko, that experiential knowledge. He says, you've come to understand another truth. As you've observed other believers around you, you've come to understand this truth too, that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. That the, the genuine real deal believer is becoming more and more like Jesus in their behavior. John taught us from the beginning of chapter two that when I make Jesus my home, I progress in my obedience to God, I progress in my love for others, and I progress in holding fast to the truth. That's what righteousness looks like. Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. He says, you think the Lord's pleased with offerings and with sacrifices? The obvious answer is no. Verse 8, he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? What is it? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Do justly, obedience, love mercy, loving kindness towards other people, to walk humbly with your God, to submit to his truth, his way of doing things. It's not a complex idea. From the all the way in the Old Testament, all the way in the New Testament, someone who's following the Lord, it's the same. It's the same. When we make God our home, when we make Jesus our home, we're growing in obedience, we're growing in love for others, we're holding fast to the truth. And John says when you keep doing that, you look different. 
You're looking more and more like Jesus every day. And as a result, you have an absolute confidence in your relationship with the Lord. That will enable you to keep growing and then to go deeper in your relationship with Him. Now again, note, John doesn't say the only way you can have assurance is if you're doing those three things perfectly all the time. That's not what he says. But his, his warning is, is that if you're resisting and rejecting one or more of these three tests, these three ideas, these three truths, he says you're not going to have confidence. You're not going to have assurance. Or if you do, it's not good. Does that mean you're not saved? Not necessarily. But you won't have assurance. And so my encouragement to you this morning as the team comes up to close us with a song is don't resist the work God is doing in you. Don't reject and rebel against the work the Holy Spirit's trying to do in you. Walk humbly with Him. Let Him define truth. Don't be prideful. Let Him define what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's not. Commit to obeying His commands even when it's a struggle or even when you keep failing. And decide to love others even though you don't feel like doing it. Because that's what believers do. That's what born ones do. And so if after the last few weeks you've realized, no, I'm not perfect, but I do pass these three tests. Well, then have confidence and don't stay away from the Lord. Don't let the enemy condemn you. Don't listen to anyone else who condemns you, you know? Rest in the finished work of Christ and come boldly before His throne of grace so you can find all the grace and mercy to help in your time of need. You know, if we, if we adopt the idea that, well, I can only come to God's throne if I'm doing everything right, the very idea is counter to that verse. The, grace and mercy aren't needed when you're doing everything right. Grace and mercy are needed when you're messing up. I think we misunderstand why we're welcome at the throne of God. We're welcome there not because we don't sin. We're welcome there because we're His kids. So don't stay away. You might be thinking this morning, okay, so we've covered it all. There's three more chapters. What, what else does John have to say? Read ahead to chapter 3 and then come back next week and we'll dig in. So let's all stand. Lord, you know where we're all at this morning. You know if maybe there are some here who are not right with you, Lord. Maybe they've never been born again. And Lord, I pray you'd make that clear because we don't want any of us to leave here deceived by our own pride or maybe even by ideas that we've heard from others that have led us off the path of the sufficiency that we have in you. And I know maybe there are some here who these truths, they resonate, but the enemy just keeps condemning them. Lord, I pray you'd help all of us to, re to receive these truths. Lord, we make that choice now, even though maybe even there's a a voice screaming in our head saying, you're not saved, that's not true. We make a choice now to receive your word with humility, lay down our pride. And Lord, I pray that everyone here would leave with that assurance, that confidence, that should the trumpet sound, Lord, we would be happy to see you. Bless every person I pray here in Jesus' name, amen.